Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Draft Analysts, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi of DraftAnalyst.com, kicking off our fourth episode with longtime draft analyst Tony Pauline, as always. How's everything tonight, Tony? Okay, Chris. Interesting weekend in uh, college football. There really were no big upsets this week as we've seen in uh, previous weeks, although we did see some spectacular performances, especially from Alabama as they uh, just smashed Mississippi State. Uh, So let's get it started with that. All right. For the second week in a row, as you alluded to before, we'll start with top-ranked Alabama, which, again, shut out an SEC opponent with that 24-0 win over Mississippi State. The big individual matchup to watch in this game going in was tied defensive lineman Quinnen Williams against highly regarded Bulldog center Elton Jenkins. What did you see from these two, Tony? Well, I saw uh, Williams not only win the battle, but he won the war. I mean, he was dominant. This guy, kid just keeps getting better and better and better, and he does it against all types of competition. Let's go back to what we said last week. Elton Jenkins coming into the season was graded anywhere from a mid-first-round pick to an early second-round pick by scouts, and Quinnen Williams basically made him look like a free agent pick at times. Williams was explosive. He's athletic. He showed great power. Uh, He beat Jenkins off the snap with a great first step. He showed terrific hand moves. He's fundamentally sound, plays with great head level and leverage. At times when they double teamed him, he was able to hold his ground, which allowed his teammates to uh, make plays on the ball. I love his athleticism, the change of direction. He's not just a guy that penetrates the line of scrimmage and that's it. He can change direction and run down ball handlers in pursuit. He's really a three down down player. Uh, When you talk about Jenkins, I thought he kind of looked like he was playing back on his heels. Uh, kind of looked a little bit indecisive, really didn't have the game he wanted to, showed a little bit of stiffness. I don't know that he's usually stiff or he was maybe just a little bit intimidated by, by the talent that he was going against. But Chris, you're now going to hear Quinnen Williams mentioned in the same breath as Ed Oliver and Nick Bose as one of the top players eligible for the 2019 draft. And I think it's justified. Yeah, Williams really showed the entire package Saturday, as he has all season. He used his great first-step quickness to beat the slower-footed Jenkins off the snap, effectively used swim moves and other rush techniques to avoid getting engaged with Jenkins, who does have strong hands to control when he does get a hold of you. Williams also showed the ability to move laterally down the line of scrimmage to make plays and really seemed to be in Jenkins' head from the start. You know, you mentioned whether Jenkins was intimidated by Williams. Uh, The center had serious communication issues on shotgun snaps and also accuracy issues on those snaps with quarterback Nick, Nick Fitzgerald throughout the game. It was almost like he was rushing those snaps knowing that he had to handle Wilkins or sorry, Williams. And, you know, he was just completely in his head from the start. Now, Jenkins did show the ability to fire off the ball and seal in the run game when Williams wasn't lined up head on, and he did get to the second level to help out on linebackers as well. But overall, it was a very tough game for the Bulldogs' top linemen. Another SEC battle in the trenches that caught our attention was tackle Greg Little of Old Miss against Texas A&M, which boasts a talented senior pass rusher in Landis Durham. Did the offensive linemen fare better in this battle than the Alabama game? Slightly, but not a whole lot better. I mean, I thought Little looked a little bit apprehensive. He looked a little bit indecisive. He showed some stiffness. You know, he's a fundamentally sound lineman. 
bends his knees. He's strong. He's athletic. There was just not that wow factor there. Does a good job in pass protection. Shows decent lateral range and the ability to slide out. But again, you know, at times he, he seems like he's getting walked back in the pocket uh, to me. At times he just doesn't seem to block with that nasty mentality. You know, as I've said before in this podcast, there are people who don't think he's going to be a left tackle at the next level. There are some people who are concerned about his lower body strength. I saw some of those concerns, but I also saw great potential. And I, I saw a guy who I still think is going to be the best left tackle in this year's draft. On the other hand, I was very impressed with Landis. You know, again, let's go back to what we talked about last week. He was graded by some scouts as a top 45 choice. Other scouts had him graded as a free agent. But he looked very quick. He was athletic. He was versatile. Was able to rush the edge with speed. Good change of direction. Occasionally dropped off the line in in, uh, pass coverage. Uh, He's got to get a little bit stronger. When he was locked up in blocks, he was uh, was slow to shed. Very easily engaged to the point of attack. But I think that will come. Uh, he has the size, he has the athleticism to get consideration as a one-gap defensive end or potentially a stand-up uh, linebacker in a 3-4 uh, where he can be used as a pass rusher. You know, the end result is Landis definitely helped this draft stock. And while I don't believe he's a top 45 choice as graded by some scouts uh, as he was entering the season, I do believe this game against Mississippi and Greg Little will go a long way in helping him secure uh, a spot in the second day of next April's draft. The one thing that stood out to me about Durham was his motor. He's nonstop when it comes to fighting until the whistle. He keeps his feet moving and his hands active, and he really made it difficult for Little to keep him at bay for more than a few seconds at a time. That motor also allows Durham to chase down plays 7 to 10 yards down the field. He showed good twitch reacting to Little's movements, especially when the old Miss tackle got a bit overextended and cost himself some balance and leverage. Durham was right there to take advantage of it, so high motor. Heady player, has the size, has the athletic ability. You know, he's a guy that is going to be one to watch on day two of the draft. Now, as for Little, his power was evident in the run game. There was one play where he pushed Kingsley Kiki, an NFL prospect in his own right, all the way to the other side of the line of scrimmage and kept his feet moving throughout the play. His wide base does make it a little difficult to get the edge on him and move him off his anchor, and he's capable of re-anchoring, too, when he's beat by a quick initial move, has strong hands to control opponents. As you alluded to before, this wasn't his best game, but to me that was more about Durham playing well than it was about Little playing poorly. Yes, there are some concerns as far as whether he's going to stick at left tackle, but you at the very least saw the ability to be a road-grading guard at the next level. But the physical skills to me, they're all there to stick a tackle at the next level if he works towards it and if he can get to that point. For our final game review from Week 11, we'll head back north to the Big Ten, where Iowa's potent tight end duo of Noah Fant and TJ Hawkinson went up against Northwestern a team that features a potential day three linebacker in the speedy Nate Hall. Tony, who impressed you most out of these three guys? You know, it was a very big and important win for Northwestern, and their entire defense came through. Once again, it was TJ Hawkinson, the other tight end from Iowa, who was the most impressive player of the three for me. Uh, Seven receptions for 89 yards. He looked very athletic. He was natural catching the ball. He's a natural seam splitter. Good speed. Uh, looks like basically an oversized wide receiver. Hawkinson was a week eight riser. And as I said back then, he's a legitimate next level prospect who's going to be drafted much earlier than people presently predict. I was also relatively impressed with Nate Hall. I mean, he was quiet on the stat sheet, only four tackles and one tackle for loss, but he shows excellent instincts. He doesn't make mental mistakes. And he's one of the reasons Noah Fant caught just a single pass in the game. And I continue to believe as we move closer to the 2019 NFL draft that Nate Hall is one of the most underrated linebackers from the senior class, and he's going to be underdrafted. 
Yeah, Fant gets all the attention in the draft community, but it was definitely Hawkinson showing out in this game as he outproduced his hype teammate and showed NFL ability while doing it. You know, there might be a time sometime in the near future, possibly, where he's no longer viewed as the other Iowa tight end. Uh, He's a sharp route runner. He knows how to use his frame to get off the line of scrimmage and create separation at the stem of his routes. He extends for passes away from his body, and he's really a smooth athlete. Now, certainly one hurdle doesn't make a starting NFL tight end, as Max Williams from a few years ago might attest, but it was still impressive to see Hawkinson jump over a Northwestern defender on the sideline. He's a strong run blocker, too, with the ability to pancake defenders, and at about 6'5", 250, he has the size to play in line, as well as the skill to line up in the slot and threaten the scene. And, as you said, he was quiet, and much of that, again, as you said, is a credit to Hall. The Wildcats linebacker is quick to read and diagnose plays, and while he's more of a drag-down tackler than a guy who'll just stop you right in your tracks, that's to be expected from a 230-pound linebacker. If he's capable of covering tight ends at the NFL level, as well as he did Saturday, that tackling, that drag-down tackling issue is not really going to matter unless he starts to miss tackles, and I haven't really noticed tackling efficiency being a problem for him. Before we discuss the big draft news from the week, Please be sure to support the draft analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find us at Believe.com. Leave a rating and a review. And if you ask a question in your review, we'll do our best to answer it on the show if there's time at the end. You can also tweet us questions at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, at Draft Analyst One, and at Believe underscore LA to get in touch with the show as well. Now, Tony, let's start off our news segment with a quick detour from our typical focus, and we'll go and we'll look at the NFL. We have some breaking news on a few teams, as well as positions that will be highly valued next April. Let's start in the AFC East, Tony. What do you have for us? Chris, I'm told the Miami Dolphins are really hoping that Justin Herbert enters the draft. And in this early, pro- early part of the scouting process, I can say with confidence that he is the player that they are likely to target. General Manager Mike Tannenbaum was in Utah Saturday night specifically to scout Herbert. He was raving about the, uh, the Oregon quarterback after the game. He likes Herbert's entire game, the physical skills as well as his play on the field. So when the general manager makes a special trip out there, especially the night before a game, and he had to fly back uh, to mid-America for the Miami Dolphin-Green Bay Packer game, you know it's big news. So I can tell you right now, the Miami Dolphins really like Justin Herbert of Oregon. I remember last year, Tony, you reported that the Dolphins were high on UCLA's Josh Rosen and would try to trade up for him. Uh, There were also rumors connecting the Dolphins to Baker Mayfield, but you were more on the Rosen train. Obviously, they ended up losing out on the UCLA QB when the Cardinals jumped up to grab him. Do you think it's going to be a similar situation this year where Miami will have to move up again if they want their guy? It looks that way. I mean, obviously, the first question is, does Justin Herbert enter the draft? We've addressed that topic a number of times on this podcast. But if you look at the way things are breaking, the New York Giants, the Denver Broncos, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and maybe the Oakland Raiders are teams who were going to consider drafting a quarterback in the early part of round one. And right now, they're all going to be selecting ahead of Miami. Over the past three weeks, we've passed along reports that there was strong sentiment Herbert would not enter the draft. And you responded by saying that Herbert was a long way from a final decision and would go through the process. Now, he recently told reporters in Oregon that he hasn't, and I quote, spent three seconds thinking about 2019. Do you have anything new to add on the situation? Chris, I can tell you that Herbert's parents have been meeting with with agents, which is part of the process I mentioned he'll go through. I'm sure his his parents are going to do some vetting of agents, which is normal uh, for underclassmen. They have parents, they have brothers, they have confidants who will basically go through the agent process for them and say, "I, I recommend these two or these three. And then Herbert's going to get opinions from scouts. 
He'll eventually get a grade from the advisory committee before he announces his future intentions. Let's move from quarterback to another position on the offensive side of the ball. What are you hearing about next year's tight end class? You know, I'm hearing the tight ends are going to be overdrafted next April because so many teams need one and they're going to be looking for prospects at the position. You know, in order for the supply to meet the demand, the position is really going to need an injection of talent from the underclassmen. I've also been told at this stage that the Denver Broncos will look to take a tight end early in the draft. I can't see them taking one in, in, in the first round, although a source told me don't be surprised if they go tight end in round one. But depending on what they do in free agency, I think a tight end could be in the mix for the Broncos within the first two rounds. Now, you mentioned an injection of talent from the underclassmen. Who at the position is going to break into the top 60 selections if they do end up declaring for the draft? Yeah, that would be Irv Smith Jr. of Alabama, Caden Smith of Stanford, whom I expect to enter the draft, Noah Fant of Iowa, who a lot of scouts like, Zach Gentry of Michigan, and Albert Aquabanam of Missouri all fit the bill. Fant and Aquabanam are interesting cases. Some people believe Fant will be a first-round pick and can be an Evan Engram type of tight end at the next level, though he's not going to run a 4-4 as Engram did at the Combine. But, you know, Iowa rarely loses underclassmen to the NFL draft. Aquabanam is well-liked in scouting circles and carries a top 45 grade, but I'm told he's got some academic interest that he wants to pursue and that entering the draft right now is not a priority. If those two decide to return to college, it will increase the value of the two Smiths, Irv Jr. of Alabama and Caden of Stanford, as well as Gentry. Now, on last week's podcast, we spoke about the matchup between West Virginia offensive tackle Colton McKivitz and Texas defensive end Charles Omenihu. And it seems Omenihu is actually very complimentary of McKivitz afterwards. Can you fill us in on the details of that? Yeah, I had a conversation with somebody on Monday, and it was very interesting. It basically centered around Amenahu, and I was told without, without asking or, or any solicitation that Amenahu himself was very complimentary of Colton McKinnitz. Amenahu went into the game believing that Yadni Kajust, the Mountaineers' left tackle who carries a third-round grade from scouts, was the best blocker in the West Virginia line based on what he had seen and what he was told. But he left the game impressed by McKivitz and told people that McKivitz was far and away the best player on the WVU offensive line. Sounds like a man who listened to our last episode where we showered praise on McKivitz for his performance against the Longhorns. A player we haven't showered praise on over the past month is Colorado quarterback Steven Montez, and the Buffs lead off our Week 12 previews as they host Utah on Saturday afternoon. Colorado needs a win to avoid falling below 500, which was almost unthinkable after a 5-0 start. And there were reports just this week that the school will let go of head coach Mike McIntyre at the end of the season, though the school's AD is refuting those reports. Last week's return of LaVisca Chenault should help the team moving forward after he caught 10 passes for 102 yards and a blowout loss to Washington State. Tony, what are you focusing on in this matchup? Yeah, it's been a downward fall for Colorado, and Steven Montez really needs to pick up his play, especially if he you know, is considering entering the draft, which we reported a couple of weeks ago could be a possibility. Now, Utah has several solid prospects in their secondary, including junior quarterback Julian Blackman and senior safeties Marquise Blair and Corey and Ballard. They're all going to be last-day selections. They're all NFL prospects. If they're not last-day selections, they'll be priority free agents and all have next-level potential. 
Montez struggled against a talented Washington sec- uh, secondary uh, earlier this season, which began Colorado's five-game slide. He really needs to show that he can perform against next-level talent if he's going to enter the draft, and he'll have an opportunity this weekend against the Utes. Another quarterback who could factor into next year's draft is Duke's Daniel Jones, and he'll face a big test this weekend as the Blue Devils head to Death Valley to take on Clemson. Jones missed two games earlier this season with a fractured clavicle and has been up and down since coming back earlier than expected, alternating games with one or fewer touchdowns with games of three-plus scores. What do you want to see from Jones in this matchup with the vaunted Clemson D, Tony? You know, Chris, we keep going back to the Clemson defense on these podcasts, and that's because from front to back, they're probably the most complete defense in the nation as far as NFL prospects are concerned. Alabama has more quality at the top, but I think Clemson is the most complete, which is why this game is so important for Jones. Now, if you're someone who followed us or followed me at DraftNationals.com, you'll know I first mentioned Daniel Jones as a draftable prospect in July of 2017 when I did my scouting report on Duke which was right after his redshirt freshman campaign. I like his game, but to be honest, Chris, I don't love him. And truth be told, I was not all that impressed with the progress he made between the 2016 and 2017 seasons. He's a tall passer with a decent next-level arm and a terrific head for the game. He spreads the ball around to what must be considered inferior talent at Duke. He doesn't panic under pressure, and for the most part, he makes proper decisions. If Jones enters the draft, which I'm told is better than 50-50 right now, many people feel he will end up in the bottom third of round one, and he can prove that he deserves that grade against Clemson. Now, we've obviously talked about the Clemson defensive line, which has five players that are going to be drafted in next April's draft, several as, high, several as early as the top 10 selections, and even their fifth lineman, Albert Huggins, grades as a mid-round pick, and he's somebody that nobody talks about. Then you have their linebackers, Trey Lamar, Kendall Joseph, and Isaiah Simmons, who's really an oversized safety. All three of those guys are effective in pass coverage. All three of those guys are explosive on the blitz, and they're all draftable prospect. Finally, there's quarterback Trayvon Mullen, who I grade as a top 45 prospect. This is a statement game for Jones in either direction. At the end of the contest, if he plays well, many are going to say he's definitely ready for the next level and deserves a first-round grade. But if he throws up a dud, it could be a situation where people respond by saying Jones should return to Duke for a senior season. Jones is a guy who has shown some improvement this season after stagnating a little last year, as you mentioned. And this week's test against Clemson will help determine how much of that improvement is tangible. Our last preview this week takes us to Georgia, where the Bulldogs will take on visiting UMass. While this game isn't expected to be close based on its 44-point spread, the Minutemen do have an intriguing sleeper at receiver who will be tested against top corner prospect DeAndre Baker and the Georgia defense. Andy Isabella is that receiver we're talking about, and he's a player who entered the season graded by scouts as a street-free agent, but he's having a monster season. He was listed as a Week 10 riser at DraftDonalds.com, and thus far this season he has 87 receptions for 1,479 yards and 11 TDs, but you got to look at some of these performances. 10 receptions last week against BYU. 13 catches for 191 yards against South Florida. 5 receptions for 96 yards against a talented Boston College secondary. All quality teams. But this week against Georgia, it's a whole new level when he faces off against cornerback DeAndre Baker and safety J.R. Reed, who both graded second-round selections. Isabella is a guy who's going to have to use his smarts and quickness to separate from both of these guys. Baker likes, likes to play tough physical football and has a slight size advantage over Isabella. This is a huge test for Isabella, and I have no doubt 
He's up for it mentally. But can he compete physically with the Georgia secondary? If he does, I firmly believe he will secure a spot for himself in the last day of the draft. Tony, a couple of weeks ago, Thor Nystrom of Roto World asked a question about quarterback Easton Stick of North Dakota. I know you did your film work on him, but in the end came away more impressed with a different quarterback from the Missouri Valley Conference. Yeah, let, let's first start with Easton Stick. I mean, he's got adequate size, six foot one, one and a half inches, 222 pounds. He's a smart quarterback. He displays outstanding pocket presence. He's patient. He sees the field. He senses pressure. He slides outside to give himself a better view of the field. Does a great job locating the open wideout. Very patient. He displays excellent speed on the short and intermediate throws. Not averse to throwing the ball into covered target. Doesn't always do a good job finding the safety. Doesn't have a great deep arm. I think when it comes to Easton Stick of, of North Dakota State, uh, I think he's a guy who could be a third quarterback at the next level, more of a game manager. I was impressed with South Dakota State uh, signal caller Taryn Christian. Almost the same exact size as Stick at six feet, one and a half inches, 220 pounds, but more athletic with a better arm. Consistently challenges the deep game, relatively accurate on his long throws. Uh, legitimate threat, picking up yardage with his legs, can take off up the field and, and make big plays from the line of scrimmage if things break down. Shows great zip on his short and intermediate throws. He's a smart quarterback. He'll go to the underneath pass catcher if nothing else is available. Very instinctive, displays a sense of timing on his throws. Incredibly elusive. Uh, doesn't have great upside. Really, when you look at it this year, people talk about Easton Stick. But it has been Tarrant Christian who's outperforming him. Uh, I mean, 60.9% of pass completion for Christian compared to 579 for uh, Stick. Stick has 1,792 passing yards this year compared to 23, 2,377 for uh, Christian. Christian has 25 TD passes compared to 19 for Stick. So I think that Christian could end up in the last round of the draft. Be interesting to see if he gets to an invite to something like the Shrine Game, which I think he deserves. I think he, because of his ability to pick up yardage with his legs, everybody likes those RPO-type quarterbacks right now. Uh, I think he's going to be higher rated than uh, Easton Stick going uh, moving towards the draft. I think he's a viable quarterback as a potentially number two or at least number three at the next level. And that's all we have here on episode number four of The Draft Analysts, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to send us questions to answer on the show via Twitter or review. And as always, head over to draftanalyst.com for all the latest draft news and analysis. For Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Tripodi. Good night. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.